0: people expressed fear that I was going to cause a heart attack by breaking something again today, and I want to put you at ease. Nothing, uh, no tricks, okay? Uh, let's try to rebuild trust once again. <laughs> I want to show you an artifact, and I'm really excited to do so, but before I do, I wanted to tell you a little story by uh, way of kind of introing the topic in that regard, so I broke my thumb when I was 16 years old while skiing in Colorado, all right? I can still remember it well today. It was my right thumb. That's as far as I can open it. And you see the difference. It, it healed with the bone kind of at a bad angle. The doctor has uh, offered to re-break it and set it to increase my mobility, and I'm fine. That's <laughs> just what <sort> it's <of> <laughs> I am so glad I broke my thumb. And you say, then you're weird. Let me me explain why. Uh, So I was 16 years old. I was madly in love with this gorgeous young lady. I can talk freely about it because I'm married to her today. Uh, But she was not in love with me. I was way out of my range. I had no business uh, setting my sights that high. Uh, Jen saw me as a friend, but nothing more. Well, on this particular winter, there were about... 10 families of friends that all went skiing together at Winter Park. And Jen's family and my family were two of those families, so I was so excited to be with her. And I hoped that maybe my skiing expertise may catch her notice, all right? Yeah, you can tell already that didn't work as I had planned, did it? Honestly, if I had broke my thumb doing like a triple flip on a double black diamond, you know, that would have been one thing. I broke my thumb on a beginner's hill, standing still, yeah, I I came skiing up, I stopped, fell over and broke my thumb, can you believe it? And it was a bad break. The the jagged ends of the bones were jabbing into the, the muscle around it, and it hurt so bad, I thought I was going to vomit. Have you ever had pain to the point of nausea? Well, Jen comes over to me. She goes, did you hurt yourself standing up and falling down? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, a little bit, I said. And I thought that puking on her skis was not going to be a way to win her. And so I wanted to uh, throw up in privacy. So I skied away from her to go over to some trees because I didn't want her to see me uh, do that. And she skied over to me. (laughs) Jen's a very compassionate person. So then I skied away again, faster this time. (laughs) And she followed me again. And then I skied faster. And it turns out she's a really good skier. And so we were... no joke, racing down the hill. I'm trying to get a place to toss my cookies in private and I couldn't get away from her. Well, got to the end of the hill and I I realized that the nausea was starting to fade and I probably wasn't going to have to vomit, but I was still in immense pain. And I said to Jen, believe it or not, I think I may have broken something in my thumb. I said, you go join everybody. I'm going to wait in the lodge until the end of the day, and I may have ne- need to go to the hospital. And, and Jen said, well, I can't leave you alone. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, she said, let, let them go. I, I, I got to stay with you. And so, though I was in pain, I forgot about it, because we sat by a crackling fireplace in that ski lodge. And we sipped all afternoon hot chocolate and told stories of her life and of my life. And in that moment, Jen and I, I was already in love, but she started to have feelings for me. Isn't that beautiful? I'm so glad I broke my thumb. (laughs) That pain led to relational connection as we went through it together. And that's kind of a picture for what can happen with God. None of us want pain in our lives, do we? We would prefer that nothing be broken, that it all be smooth sailing, but the reality of life is that sometimes we go through pain for ordeals. And yet what we're about to discover is that those seasons of great pain can result in a season of great relational connection with God, where we fall in love with him at a whole nother level. Sometimes so great is the relational connection we receive with God that some even say, you know what, I think I may be glad I went through that because my relationship with God is marked forever. That's what our passage is going to teach us today, and I'm so excited to dive into God's Word, but before we do, we have a museum we must visit once again. Welcome back to the Oriental Institutes at the University of Chicago. Back in the early 1900s, archaeologists were digging in the ancient city of Babylon, Presently located in the southern part of Iraq, this was the capital of the mighty Babylonian empire back around 600 BC. It was the famous Nebuchadnezzar who made Babylon the capital and turned it into the extraordinary city that it became. And one of the places that he decked out to the extreme was the Ishtar Gate. It was the main gate into the city of Babylon, and he decorated it lavishly. In fact, these two lions made of glazed brick here at the Oriental Institute come from the Ishtar Gate built by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Can you believe the beauty and how well-preserved these glazed bricks are? Folks, can I remind you just for a moment about the the biblical uh, significance of the city in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar conquered, destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah and took away the people as uh, prisoners of war. And some of the people that were brought to Babylon were famous biblical characters, namely Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, They most likely were dragged to the city as prisoners and passed through the Ishtar Gate. Can you imagine these biblical characters passing by these very lions? And it's also significant to think about how these glazed bricks are made. Nebuchadnezzar had a thing for glazed brick. It was his, his product of choice. And so as a result, there had to be in Babylon many massive furnaces. Why do we know that? We know that because really there's a two-step process in creating these bricks. First, you have to bake the brick itself. And then secondly, you have to bake it a second time to cook the glaze onto the brick. And so with the quantity of glazed brick that the archaeologists have discovered in Babylon, we know there must have been a lot of fiery furnaces in Babylon in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't that interesting? Could it have been the very furnace that fired these bricks The Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown to go to the museum. Let's, let's move church, shall we? Let's all go right now. We'll try to cram in there and see. When I walk past those lions, I, I, can't, I can't help but notice the powerful detail, the beautiful artistry. They're striking. And I like to think that when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chains walked past those very same lions, they too were caught by the beauty, by the stunning uh, artwork there with their hearts beating, wondering what life in this city would be like. Do you remember what life was like for them? One of the horrific moments occurred when King Nebuchadnezzar put up this huge statue of gold and instructed all the people in Babylon to bow and worship to this gold idol. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as devoted followers of the one true God said, "We will not bow." And Nebuchadnezzar says, if you do not bow, I will kill you by throwing you to bake alive into my brick ovens. And they said, do what you got to do, Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow. And so as a result, they were thrown into the oven. Now, it's the oven, the brick oven that I want to study with you. What happened in that oven? And so, let's turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. If you have the Bibles in front of your chairs, you can find it on page 673. Verse 20 says this, Nebuchadnezzar ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. Now, I'm going to say something that's ridiculous, but I wish it was me. I wish I had been thrown in that fiery furnace. And you say, what in the world are you talking about, Jeff? Folks, when you see what happens in that furnace, what they get to experience, you're going to say the same. It was an opportunity of a lifetime. Next verse. So they tied them up and they threw them into the furnace, fully dressed, in their pants, their turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. You talk about a hot furnace? The soldiers, as they got up to the door, the heat was too much, and they were killed by it. Verse 23, So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, they fell into the roaring flames." I just want to make a comment. They fell. They're bound securely, and they fell. I think the falling points to the fact that this binding was in total. Not only were their arms bound, but their legs were bound as well. And so they literally just fell because they couldn't stand. They were that bound. And that's going to be significant later on. Verse 24. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar the king jumped up Apparently, he was sitting in a throne, so he stands up in amazement, and he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we just tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. And then here's my favorite verse in this passage, verse 25. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth. Looks like a god. Oh, you know who's preaching in some ways? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is preaching. This verse that we're going to uh, study together are uh, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king who observes something so profound, and he describes what he sees. And we are going to be blessed richly by the words of this pagan king. So, you ready? First thing I want to point to is Nebuchadnezzar says, "Look." shouted Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's calling the attention of everybody who's there to this sight that he's seeing. He's so convinced that what's happening in the furnace is so significant that everybody needs to look. Everybody then and everybody today. is saying, people, you gotta look at what I see. This will change your life if you understand what I see. And I believe that. Next. He says, in the fire. He sees these guys in the fire. And you say, why why is that significant? God could have rescued them by transporting them in that way, in that moment, miraculously out of the fire. God could have swept them up. There's other biblical examples of God just, whoop, people disappear and reappear somewhere else. But God didn't do that. God said, no, guys, you're going to go in the fire. And God intervened, but he did not intervene by removing them from the trial. And I need to comment on that because many Christians today mistakenly assume that God promises we won't have to go through fire. I'll have folks come to me sometimes and say, Pastor, I gave my life to Jesus and look what happened. And they're like, that's not supposed to happen. I'm like, what do you mean it's not supposed to happen? And they're like, well, I thought that when you trust Christ, things go well for you. I'm sorry, you you didn't read the right Bible. Because the Bible says that we live on a fallen, messed up planet. In heaven, yes, things will be perfect in heaven, but we're not there yet. We have some remaining years on this ball of dirt called planet Earth, and this Earth is marked by the curse Our spiritual rebellion has caused things to go haywire, and as a result, there's all kinds of suffering that we will find in our life path. In fact, there's no problem. Jesus did not say, you will not experience trouble. Just the opposite. Jesus said, I promise you, you will face trouble in this life. You're going to go through the fire. You say, well, this is like the worst sermon I've ever heard, you know? And, and there is a good point, though. The, the promise isn't that you won't go through the fire. The promise is, God said, I'll be with you when you go through the fire. And we see that demonstrated in this verse. Uh, let's, let's go to this four men. Nebuchadnezzar says, wait, we threw three men in there, and I see four. And the fourth one, he looks like a god. I just wish Nebuchadnezzar had described more of what he saw. But let's try to imagine. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar said, he's a fourth man. He looks like a man in some ways, but he is different. Maybe he glowed. Maybe there was a, a majesty. There was something undeniably divine about him. And folks, this is God in the fire. Uh, you know, some theologians have speculated that it's Jesus, it's the second person of the Trinity. And that very well may be. Others have said, no, it's, a, it's the angel of the Lord, or it's the Father manifesting. We can get into that debate, I don't think that's helpful. The important thing is that God is there with his people. And that is one of the things that the scriptures promise All over the place. In fact, there's a passage in Isaiah where before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord had said, you're going to go through the floods and you're going to go through the fire. And God says, when you do, I will be with you. And the fire and the floods will not overwhelm you. That promise is there. Uh, One one of my uh, uh, favorite promises is found in Psalm 34, verse 18. It says, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And you may say, "Hey, wait a minute, that verse doesn't make sense because God's omnipresent, so he's close to everybody and everything at all times. And the verse is not promising uh, uh, geographic closeness. This is relational closeness. God says, when you're brokenhearted, when you're going through a hard time, God says, I promise to be uniquely close to you. Can we go back to the, the slide where it says the four men are, is underlined? The four, I saw four men and the, they were... Uh, can we go back? Yeah, there we go. Uh, I see four men. I want to point that out. See, this, this is a unique closeness. God is omnipresent at all times. That's true. He's everywhere. But God is manifesting his presence. I want to talk for a moment about the manifest presence of God. In this case, God's manifesting his presence visibly. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar can see the Lord with them. I have not had a visible manifestation of God in my life, but I have had God demonstrate his nearness to me. I have had moments where I feel, I sense the presence of God. That's what he's promising to us. He's saying that when we go through the fire, when we go through hardship, he said, I am committed to demonstrate my presence to you, to help you sense, to enjoy my nearness at a unique level. That is an incredible promise. The next phrase that I want to talk about is the walking around. Walking around. Uh, Why is that significant? You got to imagine this with me, okay? So uh, the Lord has appeared with them in the fiery furnace. And it was a large room that they would wheel these bricks into, enough room where they can kind of take a stroll. And so as Nebuchadnezzar's watching, he's like, they're like strolling around. They're walking and talking and enjoying time together. Isn't that beautiful? My wife and I like to take walks sometimes on a beautiful night. And maybe one of the greatest expressions of (laughs) relational bonding can be found in just walking with someone that you love. So let's try to imagine what that was like, all right? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suddenly are with a visible manifestation of the Lord. And he looks at them, and he helps them up, and he says, how you guys doing? You know, oh, a little stuffy in here, but other than that, we're doing okay. Uh, nice to meet you. Did they shake hands? Did they embrace? What did they say? As they walked and as they talked with God, I could imagine them saying, This is incredible. I can't believe that we're here with you. And that, I mean, we've talked to you in prayer a thousand times, but never like this, where we're actually laughing together and telling stories and communicating our love for one another. This is communion with the presence of God at an unbelievable level. And one of the things that the Bible says is that hardship marks an opportunity for us to communicate with God, to connect with God relationally at a whole nother level beyond anything we've ever experienced before. God says, I'm close to everybody, but I am particularly close to the brokenhearted. God says, I am motivated by my compassion for my people. And when I see them going through trials, God says, know this about me. I am committed to manifesting my presence, my love, my voice to them to help them get through this. And so some of you are like, fantastic. So now when I lose my job, I'm going to say, this is awesome. This represents a golden opportunity for me to take my relationship with the Lord to a whole nother level. You know, we laugh at that, but there's actually truth in that, isn't there? Can I share how I first experienced this in my life? I've enjoyed this principle much, but my first experience of it occurred back when I was a senior in college. At that point, my wife Jennifer and I, you know, since the broken thumb, we had been dating for five years, all right, five years. I was convinced we were going to get married. Uh, I was approaching graduation of college. The time to she's a year younger than me, so I had to wait a little bit. But I was ready, and to my utter shock, Jen dumped me. Now I know that you say, "No way!" Yes, way it happened. Believe me. I, uh, more painful than the thumb. It was really bad. Jen said, "Dev, I just don't think we're right." And, and she ended things. And the pain that I felt on that day that she broke up with me was greater pain than I had ever experienced in my life. I wept so hard. I, I thought my life was ending. It was one of these weeps where like snot's coming out, you know, you're like a mess. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I went around to my friends. My, I was living in a house on college campus. And I said to the guys, Jen broke up with me. And they're like, are you okay? I'm uh-uh, you know, I said, I'm going to church tonight. My church had an evening service that night. And I said to my buddies, I'm like, hey, would you be with me tonight at church? And they all said, uh, can't make it, Jeff. We've got other commitments. Please. No, no. And I was devastated as all of my friends... Uh, let me down, if you will, in that moment, that night. And so I drove to church all by myself. Had to pull over a number of times because I was crying so hard, I couldn't see the road, and I had to try to gather myself. I mean, I was a mess. I I went to church, uh, a big church with a balcony. Balcony people, way to go. I was sitting up there, and as we worshiped, I was just pouring my heart out to God, screaming inside. Why? God, this can't be happening. It's not supposed to be. She's everything to me, God. She's everything to me. I am, I've lost her. And I just bawled and bawled and bawled. And in that desperation, I was doing a few things right. I was melting down, but I had come to church in pursuit of God. And even in my pain, I was crying out to God. And I didn't know about God's commitment to be there for those who are in brokenhearted situations, but I discovered it that night with the most powerful experience of the presence of God I had ever had up to that point in my life. It came at first with this unbelievable awareness that God was there. As I wept, all of a sudden, I just realized, as I cried out, this was not to a God who was out there somewhere. It was to a God who was right there in front of me with his hands figuratively speaking on my shoulders saying, Jeff, get a grip. And I heard him speak to me in my heart, not audibly, but in my heart. This is what I heard. I was wailing about Jen dumping me and my friends letting me down. And I I heard God in my heart say, there is only one who will never, ever, ever let you down. And that's me. And, And God said, Jeff, I am the only one that you can know with absolute certainty I will always be by your side. And I love you. And at that moment, the love of God, uh, it was like he was hugging me. I had never felt this before, but God's tender compassion for me, father to son, overwhelmed me in maybe 10 minutes. I just stood there, oblivious to the song that was being sung, just basking, in God's love like raining down on me, the warmth of God's affection for me. I was drinking it in. I was clinging like a desperate soul, longing for water. I was just saying, I need your love so bad. And this thought crossed my mind. In fact, I, I, I prayed it silently to the Lord. I'm like, this experience of your love is the greatest thing I have ever felt in my life. And if you tell me that you will always be there for me, then I'm good. I don't need anything else. If I've got you, I've got enough. And my tears shifted from tears of sorrow to tears of just being overwhelmed by the presence and goodness of God. That night will forever Mark me. My relationship with God has never been the same. I went into the fire and I found God in the fire. And that's an incredible promise that the Lord makes to each of us. Well, let me uh, go back to the verse. There's a few other things I want to show you. Uh, Let's go to the next one. It says here that as Nebuchadnezzar observed, he says, I see four men, the Lord's there with them. And Nebuchadnezzar notices that though they were totally bound and incapable of moving, they're unbound now. I think it's safe to assume that the Lord had come to them, seen them in this horrible bound state, and said, guys, you're going to have to endure the fire, but I don't want you to be bound. And the Lord untied them and set them free to experience life with him even in the fire. One of the things that i found is that for some people, hardship has a way of destroying them, causing them to be all bound up to where they can't live anymore. Life is taken from them. And God says, that cannot be. Even though you're going to go through the fire, because of my presence, I want you to be free. I want you to be able to dance, to live with joy in the fire. Some people assume that because I'm going through trials, all life ends. Not when you live in the presence of God. Some people dance in the fire. Some people are in immense pain, yet at the same time, they are living life fuller than they did outside of the fire. And you say, how can that be? True life is found in this connection with the Lord. Jesus said this once where he said, you want to know what eternal life is, true life? Eternal life is this, knowing God. That's the essence of what life is. And so if in the fire, though we're in pain undescribable, if we're connecting with the Lord, we are starting to taste life at its extreme level, leading some people to, quote, Charles Dickens and say those days were the worst of times and yet they were the best of times because I found God in that in a way that will forever make that a precious sacred season of life yeah we have to go through the fire but we don't have to be bound through the presence of Jesus we can be free to live fully one more thing unharmed. (laughs) Jesus, I can imagine the Lord looking at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, you're going to have to go through the fire, but I'm going to do something, and who knows what he did, but I'm going to do something that prevents this fire that should kill you. It's not going to destroy you. I'm going to protect you. And one of the things that happens in life when we go through hardship is that hardships that would normally have been too much for us wiped us out. The Lord does something by his presence that enables us to endure. I was praying with a gentleman in uh, our church a couple weeks ago who's going through a hardship undescribable for me. I mean, I can't even imagine it. And his strength in the midst of that hardship so stirred me that I, I said something to him. I said, if I were going through what you're going through, I would never be able to be as strong as you are. And he said, yes, you would. Uh, the, The parishioner was preaching at the preacher at that moment. He goes, yes, you would. The same strength he's giving me, he'd give you. And I'm like, I guess he's got a point. We assume I'd never be able to endure cancer. I'd never be able to endure bankruptcy. I'd never be able to endure this or that. And yet, when we encounter the presence of God, When he's got his arm around us, when he's saying, listen, I'm here for you, we find ourselves capable of enduring things we never thought we'd be able to endure. It's a miracle. It's a miraculous protection of God enabling us to go through fires we never dreamed we could possibly endure. The presence of God is unbelievable. Can I just share, I have been enjoying it these days, this, this dynamic has been uh, my story this last year. Now, not nearly as bad as some fires, but leaving a church that you've been a part of for 20 years, leaving your home, leaving friends that have been your family for 20 years, Going through a long season of about seven months where I knew I was leaving the chapel, but I had no idea where I was going. I had thought the compass was going to be it, but things weren't happening quickly, and I thought maybe I'm wrong. And I, I, I knew the, the difference was I'm a little more mature this time, and I knew this principle. And I said, God, this is a fire of sorts. My whole life is up for grabs. But I know that you have a curious propensity to manifest yourself to those going through the fire. And so I said, if i got to go through this, I'm going to lean into it. I'm not only going to say whatever, I'm going to embrace it and say, God, if I've got to go... I'm speculating, hopefully, that I'll never have to go through another year where my whole life was up for grabs, where I didn't know where I was going, where I didn't know what my future was... I pray I'll never have to go through that again, I thought, but I'm going through it now, and if I've got to go through it, let's squeeze every drip of relational developing potential in this experience. And I, this last year has been the, the worst of times and the best of times for me. This was really hard. The Griffin family has shed a lot of tears, and yet I have enjoyed God. You know, normally I'm able to I'm the pastor of the chapel. I've had some position to ground my identity in. Haven't had that. I've looked and said, Lord, I don't know what my future is. All I know is I've got you, and you're enough for me. And my quiet times as I clung to the Lord were infused with a fresh dependency and embrace of my identity in Christ at a level that I have not experienced ever before. And so I will tell you, this rings true. You got fires, maybe you're in one. Maybe one's coming. Maybe it's a huge fire. Maybe it's a small fire, but we've all got hardship. I would encourage you to embrace every one of them. Grab it and say, Lord, if I must pass through, let this season, let this moment, let this situation be an impetus for me to find connection with you at a deeper level than we've ever enjoyed before. Amen? There's a, a precious, precious family, the Espinoza family, in our church. I had the chance to meet them. And they've been going through a huge fire revolving the health of their precious little daughter, Abby. And you need to hear their story.
1: was the first words I heard my daughter Abby say on the morning of December 28, 2011. She had complained the night before that her side was hurting and when she woke up in the morning she was in excruciating pain. As soon as we got to the hospital the doctors um, did a CT scan of her abdomen and after a couple minutes um, they called me and Lewis to the room to go over the results. On her left side, Everything looked fine. He said, you know, everything was in the right place. And then on the right side, um, he said this part here where her kidney should be was actually a huge tumor. Um, he immediately said, we're going to take you to Children's Memorial Hospital. And her surgery was scheduled for the next day. I remember that night I just laid down next to Abby in the hospital bed. and just praying to God you know that they would cure her you know I was also saying why God you know why my baby um, and I was just praying that he wasn't calling her home oh, I
0: need you. oh.
1: She was scheduled for um, surgery the next morning, and after four hours, we went to go see her in the recovery room. The nurse had said to us that they actually did not remove her kidney, and uh, Lewis and I were thinking, oh, we're, you know, maybe they were able to remove the tumor without affecting her kidney, but it actually was a lot worse. Um, they said that the tumor was so big that it had spread to her lungs, her liver, and was actually stuck onto her colon. And the surgeon was afraid to um, do anything in fear that she would lose part of her colon. The plan was to start six weeks of chemotherapy in hopes that the tumor would shrink. Chemotherapy started. Abby, um, you know, got weak. It um, was really hard on her. Um, and then after six weeks had passed, we went back to the hospital. And found out that actually the tumor had shrunk to 80% the size. We just thought it was a miracle that it was God. And um, they scheduled her surgery to remove the tumor and the kidney. We had this sense and feeling that God was there and that he was in control. I truly just fully had to give everything to God. So I began blogging, just my thoughts and my fears and my faith just came pouring out and I just had this calming feeling that God, you know, his presence was with me. And the, the hymn, I Surrender All, just kept, you know, coming back to me because I knew that's really all that I could do if, and to just look to him to get us through this hard time. So the second surgery um, was scheduled and the surgeon said it went textbook. The they were able to remove the tumor and her kidney um, with no problems. And Abby now started 26 weeks of chemotherapy, and um, you know it, it was hard on her. But I think the hardest part was her losing her hair, and she didn't really understand what was going on. And then also, you know, with cancer diagnosis, you know, stresses of life doesn't go away. So Eva was just an infant, uh, a couple months old. And I think it was hard on Noah too because him and Abby were so close and he didn't quite understand what was going on, but he was so supportive. He would play the viola for her um, when she was feeling down and he even went to a couple chemotherapy sessions with her as well. On July 27, 2012, we got the great news that Abby was in remission, and that was a very happy day in the Espinosa household. And actually, this July will mark two years that Abby's been in remission, and we just look back at that time, and we see God's grace and how he was with us through the entire ordeal. And we actually just celebrated another big milestone, and that was that Abby finally able to put her hair in a ponytail. It's been a day that we've been waiting for. We're just so thankful for our church and our family and our friends and especially our God because we know that he saw us through the whole time and he was there with us.
0: You know, one of the biblical benedictions is may the face of the Lord shine upon you. It's a beautiful statement. It's a cry for God's presence to not just be with us technically, but for his presence to be with us experientially, to where we recognize that he's looking at us. And when it says that his face is shining, that's a description of his delight in us, his love. And so I have, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is there are fires outside these doors that we're going to have to walk through. But my prayer is the good news is, may his face shine upon you as you go. See you next